Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. This week on our panel, we have Catherine Myers. Hello, hello. Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Eric Berry. Hey, everyone. David Richards. Hello. I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Daniel P. Clark. Hi, all. Now, do you want to give a brief introduction, who you are, why you're famous, all that good stuff? <laughs> okay. Um, well, I've been a hobbyist programmer for over 20 years, but, uh, I started blogging a lot about Ruby and, uh, other languages and technical matters, uh, maybe five or so years ago. And, um, eventually, uh, some of those really started picking up steam and lately, uh, in the past few years, I released a project that get 700 some stars on github so that got me a lot of attention it's one of the things i'm well known for but yeah awesome now we invited you on and this is really fascinating and i'm looking forward to digging into this but um you wrote an article back in february about improving ruby performance with rust and just to give a little bit of context to people most of the time when you hear people improving Ruby performance with something, it's usually C or C++. And, you know, so you, you basically compile the C extension and blah, 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 off you go. And then it's, you know, it's running in this really, really fast compiled system. And I, I had, I guess it might have crossed my mind at some point that you might be able to do it with Rust. But if, if, I, if it had, that was about as far as it got. So... I'm curious, why Rust, and then how? Uh, why Rust? Um, actually, there was a blog post that uh, brought me to Rust. It's Rust to the Rescue of Ruby. And that caught my attention. I read it, and I saw that it was possible to to basically write some code and call it directly from Ruby and write it in another language. and the idea is basically you can build a, a dynamic library or a static library, just basically a system library and use a foreign function interface from Ruby to call those C kind of methods because it compiles down to something that uh, from Ruby you have to use something that's like C to, to call a foreign function. But all of your system libraries, if if you have 
if you know how it's typed, you can actually call it from Ruby if you have the know-how. So that's how I found it. That's how I started getting into it. And uh, yeah, uh, Rust was exciting for me because of the promises it gave of, uh, you know, no seg faults and uh, no garbage collector and great things like that. So you just listed no garbage collector as a positive. Um, so how do you go about doing that? Well, the, um, <laughs> the, the why and why is it a positive? <laughs> okay, so with garbage collectors, um, if you watch Aaron Patterson's uh, presentations on it, um, like Ruby creates pages of data to be stored in memory, and you fill those with Ruby objects, and if you need more memory, you create more pages, you use more memory, and you fill those with Ruby objects. But the garbage collector, when it cleans up items from memory, it only gets some of those objects, so you don't really free an entire page, and so that memory stays consumed. So finding things to free from memory, marking it for uh, freeing from memory, all that stuff takes time um, and your CPU cycles and slows down the process of your application. So if you can remove a garbage collector, then you don't have to wait for any of that and your memory uh, usage can be much more concise. And what Rust allows you to do um, is they have a, an ownership model is um, only one thing at any one time can own you can say, we'll call it an object because Ruby, Ruby is familiar with objects. So if something owns that object, it's responsible for freeing up the memory. And the default in Rust is when something goes out of scope, then the ownership gets let go and the memory gets freed up. So no need for a garbage collector. Sounds pretty cool to me. And yeah. so... Uh, why would you use a Rust extension in Ruby or Golang or C? What are some of the benefits it brings over just simply having a class method or something like that within your application, all written in Ruby? Um, you said all written in Ruby? What, what are you asking about? You're talking about replacing yeah, why would you refactor a bit of code that you have a method or function and write it in Rust, wrapping it around a uh, Rust extension for Ruby? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, one of the first things I did in my first week of trying out Rust to see what I could do for Ruby is I did some permutation and combinatorial count experiments because uh, I, I like playing Texas Hold'em and one of the things you can do is guess, try to guess what your odds are. And so you, there's a lot of combinatorial math involved in that. And with, uh, with Ruby, translating it over to Rust, I was able to get for a combinatorial account, I was actually able to get 1,000 to one performance boost, which that's it's a pretty heavy computational thing so that's where you could see some of the best benefits um, another thing that you can see the best benefits is uh, if you have an application that calls a method 20,000 times um, then any tiny bit of performance improvement you can get from that uh, like 20,000 times in a say you load a web page and that one load it's called that many times if you take off 
a tenth of a second, that's a huge performance improvement because that's times 20,000 um, in the receiving end. So yeah, it, it depends on what you need to change because a lot of Ruby code doesn't get called that much. So those kind of methods, you don't need to really use a, a, another language to improve upon. Yeah, absolutely. And have you uh, played around with sending objects into a Rust, uh, Rust function? Or is it really just integers and strings, more simple objects that can be passed into the extension to then be calculated or manipulated? If you try to do everything from Ruby's side with a foreign function interface, then you're going to be stuck with very basic types, uh, numbers, strings, and nil, that kind of thing. Um, but if you work on the other side, like say a different language like Rust, and you work on compatibility with Ru uh, Ruby's C code, um, you can instantiate a value object. And in Ruby, um, everything internally is assigned to a C value. So if you can create a value, you can create any object on Ruby and with Rust that is done with a few different libraries now. So yes, you can do it all. <laughs> so I'd love to talk a little bit about your gem, Faster Path. Um, so how did you say, oh, file paths, that's what I should work on? Well, I uh, I was working on a full stack project, and I noticed that the uh, the first page, the home page, the page that didn't have anything big on it, was not as fast as most websites. And so, I wanted to improve the performance, and I looked into uh, doing spec tests or uh, performance benchmarks, and. I found that when a web page was being loaded, 80% uh, of the time in that version of Rails was being spent in path handling, file path name handling. And that's just a huge chunk. I mean, if you can, if you can shave off a good chunk of 80% of your time, I mean, twice as fast sounds like a reasonable goal. And the most used method was chop base name, uh, path name dot or colon chop base name. And that method was actually called 24,000 times just on my homepage loading. Um, and fixing that up, <laughs> I was astounded by the difference in performance. Uh, I went from, well, let me, let me tell you a little story about this. Uh, so I went ahead and I wrote the method uh, chop base name in Rust and produced the gem. I delivered it and I put it up. When I benchmarked, it said uh, my Rails page was loading 66% faster or that I had shaved off that much uh, time. And so I was really excited about this. I immediately went online to rubyflow.com and I shared, it's like, you can make your site 66% faster. And what, what was great is, yes, it worked. All my tests passed. But then when I opened up the web view to look at it, none of my assets had loaded. 
Like there was no JavaScript, no CSS, no images. All of it was just gone. But the site worked, the tests passed. And so that was just a surprise to me. But I, I looked internally and it was, I don't know, so for some reason it returned nil. And none of my site's tests checked for assets. So there was no red flags to be raised. Um, but once, uh, once I saw that, I fixed it so that the assets would work. And then I found it was loading 33% faster, which was still great. And uh, I updated the Ruby flow so that it wasn't inaccurate and <laughs> felt much better about that. That's cool. Uh, yeah. So whenever I run into client side problems or front end asset problems, I usually just blame Turbolinks. <laughs> I think a lot of people do that. <laughs> Not anymore. That was a few years ago, but now Turbolinks is cool. Yeah, I like Turbolinks. I, I recently wrote about how it and um, what's that? Uh, Stimulus? The the thing that preloads stuff for you on your development machine it slipped my mind right now at the moment. Are you talking about uh, Spring? Spring? Spring, yes, Spring. How Turbolinks and Spring interacts. Um, it's pretty interesting. Uh, ter- uh, JavaScript, when something goes wrong, it stops ex- execution of any JavaScript that follows that. So it's a lot easier to find the source of the bug. But if you have Spring on your system running, then... Th- the first reload or the next page that you load keeps cached the previous JavaScript, but loads everything after the broken JavaScript. Mm-hmm. So it's becomes super hard to find, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Spring is one of those things where I usually just turn it off or disable it from my app just because it usually causes more headaches than it solves. You know, yeah. Well, it helps to know what it's doing because yeah. If you're a JavaScript developer and you've never used Spring before, it, it can make you look around for days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Helix, uh, the Helix project. Helix is, it's pretty amazing actually what uh, a whole bunch of Rubyists have gotten together to do. They're designing a it's basically kind of a Ruby DSL in Rust. So you can write Ruby code, mostly Ruby code in Rust. And they've gone ahead and built uh, generators for Rails. So you can just type a command for a Rails generator and instantly have Helix ready in your Rails project. And you just type a little bit of code that you want to happen in Rust and it'll work. So you have instant items in your library folder or lib folder to make things go fast. <laughs> That's cool. So you're talking about it would it would actually bring in existing Rust libraries, kind of like a, a tool set similar to active support or something that essentially makes Rails faster out of the box? Or are you saying that it just allows you to easily generate those those libraries? Basically, it's it's like a doorway to Rust um, with without you having to do any complicated configuration or setup to get Rust working with Rails. 
you just run your Rails generator and then Rust will already be working with your Rails project. And um, you can use libraries from Rust. That, that's all available. Um, it's, it just opens the door and it leaves you the file in your Rails lib folder. Um, I believe that's the location. And mm -hmm. start typing code and your Rust code's ready right away from Ruby. How is that? What's the uh, testing pattern behind that? Is that easily tested within Ruby or does that require its own testing tools? You test it just like you would any other method in Ruby. Um, you can write tests in Rust. Um, a lot of people who would try Helix for the first time might not be familiar with Rust. So um, writing a test that way, uh, it's not difficult. Um, you just need to do a... There's a flag before a Rust method definition that says test. And you do an assertion, and then you can test it from Rust. Um, but yeah, primarily just test it like you normally would in uh, Ruby. It's really cool. I'm actually uh, Googling. See, I, I've, I've been a fan of Yehuda Cat since 2009. And I kind of followed him everywhere he went. Um, with the uh, Ember, and uh, and I, I found that he he jumped into Rust and got really really excited and became pretty vocal about it. Um, but I always had a little bit of a, a fear of it. Now looking at the syntax, it seems very similar to Elm or Elixir. It seems uh, where you define the function and then you define what's returned from that function. Um, do you see any similarities in any other languages? Um, I'm probably not too familiar with languages that use syntax like it. Uh, so yeah, it, it was, there's a lot of extra um, characters, uh, symbols used in Rust, which, uh, if you're not familiar with languages that use a lot of that, then it can seem so foreign that it's hard to, to grok, mm -hmm. to understand when you first look at it. But uh, I have found um, when you come across Rust code like that, that seems just hard to understand. Just look for the parts you do understand and accept that some of those patterns or designs belong there. And your understanding for those bits will come later. Just let yourself know that this is important. I don't need to know this now. And I just keep going forward. Right. So I think that's generally great advice for all things learning programming. Just, you know, finding the confidence to do something for a while until, and then I'll, I'll pick up the details. Um, sometimes I'll slow myself down when I get a little too anxious about not knowing everything, you know, and being uncomfortable or being comfortable with being uncomfortable is really the goal. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's all right that I don't know, but I'm getting things done. I'm learning and I'll fill in the gaps when I, when I'm ready. I found a sorry. Well, I found a really interesting website. I, I, I whenever I talk about a new a new um, like adding on to my existing tool set, I want to know like what can this provide for me aside from the speed. So I did find a website which is the Rust Cookbook, and I imagine that pretty much anything that you can write in Rust, you could bring into Ruby. Correct? Yes. So yeah, the Rust Cookbook goes through, and it has seven categories of like hundreds of examples. It's pretty neat. I'll link it in the show notes, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually pretty excited to jump into this. Sorry, Catherine, I cut you off. 
No worries. I was going to say I'm excited too. In my mind, I am now going to be the superhero of my company's code base and just like go in and and change things to Rust and all of a sudden it'll be crazy fast. Um, (laughs) So that's what's happening in my mind right now. Um, So in order to help me be that superhero, um, if you were jumping into a code base, um, what kind of stuff would you look for that would be great um, to to great components to speed up? Um, Anything that takes a considerable amount of time, like if if it makes your test suite, like that one method in your test suite, it takes a lot of time. Um, You can do performance benchmarks for uh, what methods or objects get instantiated uh, tens of thousands of times, Um, something that's really heavily dependent upon. Those are things you wanna look at. and mathematical computation, um, anything that's heavy on that, those you might want to look into optimizing through using a language like Rust. Yeah, my, I might check out what service objects we have and what kind of things we're instantiating just to do some complex stuff and see if I can move that over, get a raise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and with... With creating Rust extensions in Ruby, are you using the FFI gem to kind of mount the Rust extension within your Ruby program? Uh, I did at first. Um, Initially, I wrote everything with FFI and Rust, but um, the limitations of only being able to work with numbers, strings, and nil, I mean, there are more options, but I would have to at that time, dig into the C code to understand how to design my own uh, Ruby value object internally in mm-hmm. C to return any other object. And at that time, one of my goals in learning Rust was, I don't want to write any C in this process. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, from FFI, um, I ended up um, moving away from FFI um, to Ruru. Uh, FFI and Fiddle are the options in Ruby if you want to do direct calls to C code and get back a native C type. But in Rust, um, there are two libraries written. There's Ruru and then there's Helix. And those are designed to basically perfectly mesh, uh, not quite perfectly yet, but perfectly is the, the end goal, perfectly mesh with Ruby itself by linking into Ruby C code and you create proper uh, Ruby objects to return. So for now, I've switched from FFI to having a fiddle. Fiddle is what Ruby has included with it by itself uh, in the core standard library. I use fiddle to load the Ruru library I've built, and that, from Ruru, I'm able to instantiate all my Ruby objects, all my methods, and we're good in Ruby land that way. Cool. Yeah, I've played around with uh, other languages, C and Go language, to create Ruby extensions. And I found that the easiest way to do it is through the FFI library. So I wonder, you know, if using Fiddle would be uh, possible to just kind of reduce some of the complexity with other languages, or if maybe they have to have something like Helix um, on the native language to support something like that? With 
FFI and Fiddle. Um, Fiddle, I believe, is written more in C since through the authors of Ruby wrote it themselves. Um, but it is largely, uh, there are few tutorials out for using Fiddle. There's not that much documentation or examples for using Fiddle. It has enough. Um, and if you're a C programmer, then it should all just make sense to you and you should be able to use it. Um, with FFI, that's, that's a, a library that people have put a lot of time into. There's a lot of examples out. And um, it's not entirely written in C. It has a good portion of stuff written in Ruby as well. So with FFI, you're losing some performance you could be gaining. Um, but as far as using languages uh, like Go or other languages to write libraries, um, it would be more efficient if you were able to have them more interface to Ruby's C code directly from their side um, and just have them return uh, an expected Ruby object. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one of the things you got to consider if, if you're really trying to eke out every little hair of performance, um, then you try to go for something more native uh, to the C code. Yeah, absolutely. In my testing, some of the smaller loops or smaller calculations, the FFI library and the Golang extension actually was slower than the actual Ruby. But it wasn't until I started doing thousands of loops did, or, you know, 100,000 loops did actually see where it really started to take off and was a lot faster. It's pretty interesting just to see that initial tiny bit of overhead. Yeah, and with FFI, that, that probably is a lot of stuff, um, just some of the Ruby type checking that goes on when you mount and link uh, your method names to your, your C foreign function interface type code. Um, the, uh, one of the problems I ran into since, you know, I, I'm literally splitting hairs with my library because I was trying to go for best performance. And I wasn't just replacing um, Ruby code with my faster path library. There's also a couple of C methods we're trying to replace in Rust. And when I used FFI, now only being able to say return nil or string, there are some exceptions you need to raise. Uh, when you call file.base name or file.durname, um, there are occasions where you need to raise an exception. And in Rust, I mean, w without Ruru or Helix, I didn't have the proper way to, to do that. And what I ended up doing is when, say, for example, the string returned nil, instead I would do a, a nil or raise error on the Ruby side and I ended up paying the costs and performance just for that extra nil check. And it, it's surprising when, how much difference that made when you're looking at really fast performance. Yeah, absolutely. Are there other solutions out there that compare to the benefits that Rust can bring to Ruby and Rail and uh, and the framework. For example, is there something that um, if if you came to 
a, a Rails application and you wanted to make certain things faster, is Rust really the only option out there? Aside from, of course, writing C libraries. Um, I, I believe there are plenty of options. Um, like one of the things you got away, though, uh, is what are their costs as well as the benefits of the language that you're proposing. Um, one of the first things I, I thought about doing is looking at the Crystal language and linking that compiled library to Ruby because you'd be writing Ruby code and Ruby code and getting better performance. Mm -hmm. um, the reason I ended up not going that route is because Crystal has its own garbage collector, and so I'd be doubling down on garbage collectors. Um, and that might not be an issue for some people. I mean, that, that comes down to memory usage, and it depends on how much memory um, you're concerned about. But uh, with Rust, there was no issue there. With Go, you still have a, a garbage collector, but it definitely is a fast language, so... Um, you really just got to look for what the benefit to cost ratio is and how concerned you are about those costs. Got it. And what your team can support. <laughs> yeah. So don't go writing five different language extensions into your Ruby project. Pick one or maybe two if needed and stick with that. It's a valid point. <laughs> no, I mean, if you're going to write five different languages, <laughs> your Ruby project, um, <laughs> you might as well make those components so small and so simple that they're easy to replace with any other language because then yeah. the maintainability is not that big of an issue. Yeah, I find that um, um, I, I confuse myself a lot jumping around different languages on, on my different projects. And and I'm pretty sure that I'll be replacing <laughs> all that smorgasbord of, of languages. So I keep it small for the same reason. You know, I'm pretty sure that, okay, I'm going to solve this way, this, this way, this today. But, um, but yeah, you know, especially if, as people inherit my code, um, it becomes more and more important to keep it clean and simple. But in the beginning, I'll do what works. And then um, if it continues to work well, it'll, it'll stay, you know, there's good reason to, to use the right tool for the right job too. So, but yeah, I've, I found that to be true too, just to be a little bit wise when I've, I'm, I'm adding a new language to keep it, keep it small and direct. One thing I'd like to, to mention on, uh, if you're considering using Rust in your Ruby project, um, like the reason I chose Ruru rather than Helix had a lot to do with reading their source code. Um, and there are practices in Rust that are well-established, and there are practices in Rubies that are well-established within the community. And one of the community, um, one of the things the community likes to say is your code should be easy to understand, and you shouldn't have to document it because you could just read it. Um, so yeah, good, clean, concise code, but then there's, a less, there's less of an emphasis on documentation. However, in Rust is a polar opposite thing where documentation is very important. I mean, you look at the language, they don't, they don't write code without very robust documentation above each of the internal cores. So you could just read the source code and they will explain everything in simple terms for you to understand. And so Ruru followed this pattern. And with Rust, uh, in your documentation that's above each method or class, 
you can actually put in code examples and those code examples get tested every time you run your tests. So you'll know that if your documentation is not in sync with your code, your test will fail and you'll know, oh, I need to update my documentation or maybe the code itself is wrong, I need to fix that. So that, that is a huge benefit with Rust and with uh, using Ruru. But when I've looked at uh, Helix, I'm, I'm, they're, they're awesome. They're doing amazing work, making great progress, and it's really cool what they've done. But I don't see documentation along with the code in, in their um, library. And also the, the understandability of the code for me was more difficult looking at Helix. So most people won't need to go under the hood to look at Helix because um, a lot of it's designed just so that you, you get it started, you get it running, you're ready to go and you just work with what you know. You have a Ruby DSL that they're working on that's very nice and you know Rust, so you just put in some Rust code and it works in place. You don't need to look at their uh, source. So there's different philosophies, different things to weigh and consider. That also opens a door of opportunity for anybody who wants to contribute to open source by providing better, better inline documentation for Helix. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would love that because I, I actually, I like learning from both of them. I, I track them, any new code that gets submitted, I read it, I try to understand it. I've submitted a lot of contributions to Ruru, the project itself, to basically give more full compatibility with Ruby. And one of the things that doing this has um, helped me do is I've actually ended up reading Ruby's C code a lot. And um, so I've learned a lot about interfacing with C and C code and how to do that just by working on this, uh, working in Rust and working with Ruru. So it wasn't, it wasn't really planned initially. That was not my goal to go out and learn C code or uh, working with Ruby C code, but it, it was an added benefit. And actually, I really like how elegant Ruby's C code is. They, they've done a great job designing it. I love the the confidence that comes from that, from, you know, reading the C code, writing the documentation, reading the documentation. Sometimes the performance or the whatever hard, um, hard facts are important, but sometimes the soft skills, you know, just uh, developer confidence, you know, and, and understandability, they, they go a long ways in a project. So I, I like that. I like that when you can d dig deep and get where you want to go and, and, and have it work out. So who are some of the other big players, uh, big Rubyists that have moved into the Rust area? I know that we talked about Yehuda Cats. Yeah. Um, well, one of the, the bigger names in Rust now is Steve Klabnik. He's, um, he's helped write and author a major part of the free and open uh, Rust book. Um, the second edition is a big a big part of what he's done over the past year or so. Um, but he also has contributed to Ruru, to uh, RubySys, which is the raw linking of C code to Ruby. And he's, I believe, done a little bit of contribution to Helix. But yeah, he, uh, he's uh, done tons of presentations at conferences, sharing and teaching uh, using Rust as well. And there are a few 
people as well. Um, I think Terrence Lee, he, uh, he and some of the others I've seen uh, present at a few conferences, at Ruby conferences, and they're big contributors to the Helix Project. Um, Godfrey Chan as well, and Sean Griffin, who I've seen in a conference talk, but he's a, a Rails core contributor. And uh, yeah, they're, they're all involved in working with Rust and, and Ruby. So There's a lot of people, a lot of Rubyists are, are loving Rust. I just now figured out why it's called Ruru. <laughs> <laughs> We're now, what, a half an hour into this? And I'm, oh, I get it. Ruby. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. As Steve Klabnik would say, I love all languages that start with RU. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm trying to think of more so that we can have something called Ruru Ru. <laughs> New side project. Russian response. And <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we, it's good, been a good discussion. I, I'm a little tangential with my my comments. Um, is there any, is there any good examples of projects that have been just really fun to do? Something we could look at that, that demos this. Um, I'm not so sure about projects entirely, but if you go to Helix's uh, website, they have, they have some video examples, some beautiful drop-ins and just how to get it working in Rails right away. And uh, you can see you can see the results on your website. And so, yeah, their examples are good. Um, actually, they've got a dozen or so examples in their source code and their repository as well. They, I, I think that might be part of their test suite to run the, the demos or examples, but... If you look at their source code, you can find some good examples that might be fun and interesting. Nice. Did we talk about deployments with this stuff? So if I'm deploying a Rails app or a Ruby app on the server, do I we just install not. Rust? Or is there more to it than that? If I'm using Capistrano, is there a plugin for that? Or, yeah, do I just get magic buttons that do all the work for me? All right, so that, that depends. Um, Yes, you can put Rust on your server and you can compile if you wanted to during deploy. Um, that's, that's one option. Um, there's another option. There's a library called Thermite. And Thermite, uh, which I've added to Faster Path, it will compile the DLLs, the libraries, for my library Faster Path on my continuous integration tests. It compiles it in, in there during a major version release or a tagged version release. And then it loads it up into GitHub binaries or their release system. So you have a compressed um, version of your library you can download and use that on a server. So your server won't need to have Rust installed to use your library. Um, and Thermite as well. So you can include the gem faster path in your Rails project. And Thermite handles, during the gem install, just pulling down the right version from your GitHub release. So you get the DLL for your proper system and your Ruby version, and it'll run right there on your server without needing to compile at all. So yeah, you have options. 
Nice. And one other thing that I'm wondering is, let's say that I build a gem that relies on Rust. Can I do that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Faster Path itself is a Ruby gem uh, that relies on Rust. Uh, there are probably a few other examples. Um, there's a, some, some of the code a lot of people refer to is the... I think it's something like empty string or rusty blank. I think that's the name of the project. And yeah, that's one of the s small, simplest examples that you can look at. And um, I believe it is a Ruby gem, but I'd have to check again. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. I I've run into headaches trying to get Ruby to talk to the PG gem sometimes. And so I have to go Google how to find that. Um, binary extension thingy that you have to include. And, and so, yeah, I was thinking, oh, can you run into this kind of thing with Rust? <laughs> uh, well, when, when I first started on the journey of uh, integrating Rust with Ruby and FasterPath, the hardest part for me was figuring out how to have the gem installation compile the, the, the library asset because Ruby gems is pretty heavily designed to work for C code. If you're gonna compile extension, it looks for uh, a make file or something of the like. And that is, that is not so simple when you're trying not to write any C code and compile Rust. So there is an option, you can use a rake file um, for starting up, but I found the documentation for that very difficult to find. And um, I was not able to do that myself at the time. So I just created some rake tasks. And at the time I had people uh, do it themselves during deployment. Uh, but thankfully, um, Thermite, the library Thermite now handles all that and it uses the rake file um, for building the extension or downloading the extension depending on whether you have Rust installed locally or not. Gotcha. All right, anything else we should tackle before we do picks? All right, I see shaking heads. I'm going to go ahead and jump us over to Pix. For you, the listeners of Ruby Rogues, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Uh, Eric, do you want to start us off with picks? <laughs> yeah. So I'm just going to share uh, one. And it came from a conversation that we had prior to the recording today. And, you know, I heard this back. I was, when I used to play Dungeons and Dragons all the time as a kid. I remember when I was 11 years old, 12 years old, my brother and I would go over to a friend's house and play for hours. In fact, it got so extreme that I like, I kept my, I kept my character sheet and like 
put it in my journal, glued it to the back of my journal. That's how that's how important it was to me in my, you know, adolescent life. And uh, but one of the things that I've heard is called the Dead Ale Wives Club, talking about Dungeons and Dragons, and it is a fantastic little audio clip. Um, <laughs> it's just it talks about how Dungeons and Dragons is the occult, and then it like let's look in on on what obviously is devil worshiping, and and it comes in, and this guy's like, "Where's the Cheetos?" Yeah, that's that's really all it is. It's like I want to cast magic missile and <laughs> and that kind of stuff. And I just thought to myself as I'm listening, that is so how it is. <laughs> so anyway, uh, just a fun little share. But everybody should 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 Google um, uh, Dead L Wives Club uh, magic missile. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best thing in the world. Anyway, sorry. That's that's my share. That's my that's my pick. Sorry, folks. I might have started something mentioning D and D before the episode started recording. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine, do you have some picks for us? I I do, and uh, I'm the one on the podcast that doesn't know anything about D and D. So if you're listening to this and you don't know anything about D and D, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so my pick is a new podcast that I have discovered that I think a lot of people are already listening to, but it's new to me. Uh, it's called How I Built This. It's an NPR podcast, and it just tells the stories behind some big companies and how they got started. And the first one I listened to is the Patagonia one, which is super cool. Um, yeah, so that's my pick. It's a really cool podcast. Uh, Dave, what are your picks? So I have three picks and they all kind of go into succession with one another. So the first one is Orange Computers. They acquire and then resell hardware for servers. So you can get like old Dell rack mounted servers and stuff. And they're actually a very good pricing, good price point for use, uh, use enterprise hardware. And then so my second pick that goes on to that is all these servers that I have at home actually have Proxmox running on them all in a cluster. So they, it's a bare metal hypervisor. You can install virtual machines on there and stuff. Um, personally, I think it's a lot better than a Kubernetes cluster, but hey. So uh, that's my second pick is the Proxmox bare metal hypervisor. And then my third pick is GitLab, which GitLab is a version control. I'm sure a lot of people have heard about it for now, uh, heard about it now in the past week. I've been using it for the past six years or so and have just been in love with it. And they offer a free self-hosted version. So on one of my VMs, I have a uh, GitLab server that I use for all my private code. All right, David, what are your picks? Today, I'm going to pick this really awesome moment when uh, Mitch Hurwitz, who created Arrested Development, uh, in order to create season five, he remixed season four. And the reason I want to pick this is that whatever you think about that show or season four or season five, I love how something very large could be done in a brave and different style and figure out it didn't work and refactor. And that seems to fit life. <laughs> you know, go for it, do something, do something great. If it doesn't work out, Worst case scenario, you'll explain to somebody, hey, you know what? I'm going to do it a different way this time and keep going. I just love how brave that is and open that is. And that seems to be a, a good thing to keep in mind for me and, and my projects. And um, 
you know, go for it and do some good rest too, because you'll be probably be very, very happy, but very worst case scenario. Yeah. You might change a couple of things later. No big deal. All right. I'm going to jump in with a few picks. Um, so I wasn't participating through most of the podcast because the server that uh, serves up the podcast feeds wasn't working. I, I love waking up to that stuff. Uh, it turns out that if you have a 60 gig hard drive and about uh, 40 or 50 gigs of log files on there, it'll fill up the hard drive. Um, so my pick is log rotate, um, which generally comes installed on your Linux server. Pretty easy to uh, set up and configure. Um, but then I had to go and, you know, shake up all the other stuff to get the app to start again, um, which essentially I rebooted the server and then ran Capistrano. Um, but, but the whole process of figuring all this stuff out took me a little bit of time, um, especially since when the server booted back up, I'd only get booted up in the right order. And so it started Nginx and Puma and then started Redis. And so, of course, my uh, Rails app is saying I can't connect to Redis. Anyway, I, I won't go through the whole thing, but um, it, it's, it's working now. So uh, you should be getting these uh, episodes and it shouldn't happen again for a long time. Um, but yeah, uh, all that fun stuff. Um, so yeah, so log rotate, uh, go check it out. Um, I also need to set up some kind of monitoring. I don't know what that looks like yet, but uh, if you have recommendations, let me know. I will probably though, since we're a couple weeks ahead, have that figured out before this goes live. But uh, anyway, yeah, so I guess just kind of the, the ops operation stuff, as far as all that stuff goes, I'm gonna pick. And then uh, another thing I'm gonna pick, so I've started um, blogging again. And, uh, I had, and so I'm just going to let people know, I guess, where they can get my blog post. But, um, I, I had some blog posts that were technical in content that I didn't really love. So I just kind of blew it all away. Sorry, folks, if you needed any of that stuff. Um, but yeah, so devchat.tv slash blog, um, is where that stuff's going to start showing up, uh, this week. And then, um, as we record this, and then I also have a personal blog, uh, at charlesmaxwood.com. And that blog kind of started mainly because I kind of needed a place to think through some of the stuff that I've been dealing with. Um, uh, yeah, I've just, my, my dad's passing has made me think about a lot of other things. Um, and so I'm not like, you know, in super deep grief over it at this point. Um, you know, I'm still sad about it, but, um, it's kind of made me think about a lot of other things as far as how the world works and things like that. So, um, I just needed a place to put my thoughts. So a lot of that's going to go there. Um, also, I, I tend to follow some political and other things. And I didn't want to put that all over devchat.tv. So you might see some other posts about other stuff, you know, religion, politics, etc. And most of it's just, again, a place for me to put my thoughts. So if, if you're not interested in any of that, or, uh, you know, you know, just if, if you think something's going to tick you off, don't read it, I guess. Uh, but yeah, so that's going to be devchat.tv slash blog. And the other one's going to be at uh, charlesmaxwood.com. I'm also looking for people if they want to start writing blog posts on devchat.tv. Um, I'm totally happy to, you know, um, have you start writing some of that stuff. So if you want a place to put your technical stuff and you're just kind of inconsistent in your blogging, um, I'm happy to get your periodic posts and put them up there if I think they're going to help people out. Um, and then the last thing is, is as part of this thought process, and you're probably going to see a whole lot more information about this before this episode goes live. I mean, just thinking about the direction of devchat.tv 
what I want it to be, what kind of expectation I have for myself, for the people who are working on it with me and for the my co-hosts. And so um, anyway, I'll probably be posting something. I may actually do like a YouTube video and post something to the, the RSS feed so you can all at least understand where we're going. But I've been doing a lot of thinking there. I don't think things are going to change that much as far as you're going to get a show every week. Uh, you know, we'll probably have most of the same hosts unless I make a change that people just, oh, well, I can't do that. Um, but yeah, I, I think for the most part, things aren't going to change much for the listeners, um, except for maybe the direction of the content. And really what it is, is I'm just trying to decide um, how to square up the content that we produce with uh, kind of the vision that I have for how it helps the people who listen to the shows. So um, anyway, just some, some thoughts there. Um, but yeah, keep an eye on things. I will be blogging about it as well. So if you go to devchat.tv slash blog, you can kind of keep up on that stuff. Uh, sorry, that was a lot of long-winded stuff, but uh, I've been I've been thinking a lot, and I'm just kind of getting there mentally. But I don't want to promise anything that I haven't made any decisions on. So, anyway, uh, Daniel, what are your picks? All right, I have a few. Uh, one, I want to recommend the book "Programming Rust" by Jim Blandy and Jason Orendorf. It's from O'Reilly. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, and it is one of the most well-written programming books I've ever read. Um, very well worth the money for that. Uh, another thing I want to promote, uh, I will soon, I will soon be starting a educational video series on YouTube on the channel, all your dev. Um, so the first thing I'll be starting is a rust simplified series, um, to help people get started in rust. So look forward to that. Um, Next pick is a company service called Legal Shield. Um, for a small monthly fee, you get unlimited access to an attorney and uh, a complimentary will once a year if you want to get it done or get it updated. And it's just really nice having peace of mind being able to talk to an attorney about any legal issues. Um, and they have um, identity theft restoration. So it's it's not just monitoring, but they have a, a company they partnered with who will do restoration to restore your name. So I really believe in that company and I want to bring them up. And last one is a company. Uh, this is uh, These are both U.S. and Canada um, for the listeners. The next one is Go Small Biz. And if you're a small business operator, um, for all those extra offices where you can't afford to hire people to do the other the duties of running a business, uh, go small biz fills those needs for you. And that's, that's not too expensive either. Um, so yeah, those are my recommendations. All right, Daniel, if people want to follow you online, say you have a blog or you're on Twitter or GitHub or any of that, where do they find all that stuff? Yeah, I blog at sixfootdan.com. That's six F T D A N. Um, also, the same handle on Twitter, Six Foot Dan. On GitHub, they can find me at Daniel P. Clark. And if anybody wants to uh, ask about working with Rust, uh, feel free to ask. I, I'm really excited about working with Rust and Ruby, so I'd be glad to help people who want to reach out and ask me. And uh, one more thing. Do you want to just talk briefly about CodeChip and what they do? Yeah. Um, 
CodeShip is a continuous integration service. Uh, they work well with companies or individuals who are deploying websites um, to basically test everything uh, beginning to end before you deploy. They have a pipeline that does well with that and they offer Docker support. So if anybody wants to test their uh, Docker services or sites, they can do that through their integration tool. Um, also, if you like blogging, um, you might want to consider blogging through CodeShip because they, they have a great technical blog and they're open to new people coming to blog. Awesome. One of the one of the best tech blogs out there, to be honest. Yeah, it's good stuff. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Yeah, we'll catch everyone next week. All right. See you later. See ya. Bye. 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 Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.